What a moving intro, Joseph. <laughs> I mean, you can intro it however you Wait, want. Hold man. on, are we recording now? I can cut whatever you don't want to be the intro and just start it at the intro. Okay. The magic hey guys, of movie making. Have... Well, hi everybody. Welcome to Nature Chat, the chat after Nature Check. Um, I'm here with Peter and Joe again this evening, except that we're switching roles and Joe is going to be the interviewee of sorts, I guess. Um, but first, a quick recap of what happened during episode six of Nature Check. Um, so our heroes had done a whole bunch of investigating, looking for um, physical evidence and also just straight up information to try to solve the mystery of the murder of Timothy Prendergast, or at the very least, solve enough of the murder to um, exonerate Jay Prowell, Kay's older brother. Um, they were able to uh, have a conversation with Sawan, a mysterious girl who showed up in Hudson Green's office, um, and they had a conversation with her about um, them working off Hudson's debt to Sawan, um, and in exchange, she w uh, permitted Janet Green to provide testimony and an alibi for Jay Prowell, so they went through the trial, and the judge was convinced of Jay's innocence, and everything is happy, and then there was a lot of just, like, random shenanigans for a while. Um, so that's what happened in Nature Check. Looks like um, the crew might be ready to head out of New Sagester and start exploring the beautiful wide open space of Arda, which I have totally finished developing um, for them to explore. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's what will happen in episode number seven. Um, thoughts on the murder mystery arc? Oh, I loved it. Oh, it was, was a, a yeah, it was a total surprise. Why was it a total uh, surprise? <clears throat> I was not there for part of it, so I kind of <laughs> had to catch up. But um, yeah, I think uh, uh, I think um, the sort of plot twist at the end, where we're kind of now indentured, is um, a thing. And I think that Lucanus's reaction to this is going to be kind of interesting because we've already seen how seriously he takes it. <laughs> um, yeah, there's reasons for him not taking it that seriously. Mm -hmm. But, well, I'm, I'm sure that we're going to explore those. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, just to me, we had, you know, this very concrete idea of, all right, we're going to go investigate this whole fish mystery. And then I've, I've never experienced just kind of this complete 180 of, oh, we have this emergency that we have to deal with. And we have to, you know, our, our plans are completely disrupted, which is, you know, it's very real life. Um, yeah. And, and so this thing cropped up. We have to deal with it, you know, right away, um, which we did. Yeah. It always happens during field work, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and we legitimately were planning on going out and doing field work, right? We were going to go figure out what's yeah. wrong with these fish and collect some samples and, and bring them back and, and investigate this and and as he was busy it's in the way yeah as he was busy sending k cryptic cryptic messages don't go out there yet i need you to stay here <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well, yeah no i thought you guys did a great job of sort of uh investigating all of the angles that you wanted to figure out well how do we get an alibi to protect him and how do we you know find physical evidence in the alleyway to make sure that it wasn't him and i know i think you did a great job of uh you may not have solved the murder and figured out who who actually done it but you did um do a good job of convincing the judge that jay was not the murderer so yeah, yeah. i mean i don't i don't know about lucanus but i know that cedric really struggles with this whole um since the beginning of the campaign, this whole, like, not quite just justice system in <laughs> New Tester. Um, so, I, I mean, that's, you know, something that he's kind of coming to terms with and uh, <clears throat> going to continue to wrestle with. Um, I mean, Lucanus's background with um, kind of the rule of law and order, I feel like, is very still still very mysterious Joe, do you want to? You know, if you want to reveal anything about well, that. Or... Um, so from from what we know of Lucanus's backstory, he had a rough childhood because he lived through a um, sort of dissolution of his society. So he goes to 
you know, he goes to a, a place where there's actual, like, guards and courts and not roving bands of mercenaries. Um, I think that he... Um, honestly, I don't think that he's going to take the justice system very seriously at first because he just hasn't been exposed to it. Like, his his version of the justice system is somebody robs your house, so you just go and kill him. Like, he... Like, he sees the guards and he sort of knows how it works and he's like, cool, but I'm still going to solve problems myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, whereas, yeah, whereas uh, Cedric, I mean, I, I feel like has that implicit trust in the judicial judicial. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of the opposite, right, where he's having to come to terms with the fact Yeah, and I think to Lucanus it's more just a thing that exists that like he's like well it doesn't affect me yet so i'll figure it out when it does well and it's interesting to think about how uh disparate your character's backgrounds are when it comes to thinking about the rule of law right like lucana said he was growing up or having a lot of his formative experiences at a time where there was complete lawlessness in his area of the world but Cedric has grown up in this very sort of strict and structured society in like a well-established city uh, in his con- on his continent, and now you're in New Sagester, which is sort of in this hand-wavy, Wild West-style town out in the middle of nowhere that doesn't really belong to anyone, but, like, the, you know, the, the law system and the town guard and the, uh, the military stationed in the fort all belong to Tenibria, but it's not... You know, it's it's like a lot of things happening in uh, North America and the British colonies, right? You're so far away from your yeah. homeland that a lot of things sort of are weird. But also this idea that, like, the justice system has to be a little loosey-goosey because, like, there are a lot of people in this town who are not Tenebrian citizens, and so you can't exactly deal with everything the same way you would on the home turf of Tenebria. So, yeah, um, yeah this is very much like Wild West rule of law uh, in a lot of ways. and i think one other interesting thing um you know about my character is that we can see him kind of sort of opening up and getting more comfortable Mm -hmm. around the other characters and showing like genuine affection and i think that it's starting to like become you know we sort of had an exchange um where cedric was like i'm the only one who's paid you and it's like that's not why he's really stuck around (laughs) so i thought that was a really I thought that was a really, like, even though it was sort of a joking exchange, like, mm-hmm. I thought it was a really um, informative one, at least from a character development standpoint. Well, and I'm so touched by the sort of, like, big brother thing that you've been doing for Kay. Not not creepy big brother, but, like, caring yeah. big brother, right? That, like, I mean, yeah, she's got a whole bunch yeah. of siblings, but you're sort of being yet another adopted sibling. They're like, oh, you're there for her when she needs to cry, and you're there to help protect her, and, like, I think that's really sweet. Yeah. Yeah, Kay's character seems to pick up family pretty quickly. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a thing about the Prowl family. The more you get to know the Prowls, the more you'll understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I like that about the character. I think it's I think it's good. And, you yeah. know, it's, it's one of those things where my character has a lot of sort of defenses and he's starting to let them down a bit. So I think that it'll be interesting to see how he develops from here on out. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, so Joe, all right, we know where Lucanus is from. Where are you from? Uh, I am originally from Iowa. Um, I uh, grew up in a town called Ankeny, which is about halfway between um, uh, Des Moines and Ames. Uh, Ames is where Iowa State University is, um, and that's where I got my uh, bachelor's degree. Um, And then from there, I uh, went down to um, University of Georgia, um, and, uh, that's where I got my master's degree and that's where Nancy and I met. And, um, you know, we've been working on a lot of outreach stuff, uh, since then. And I spent yeah, the last so... few years, what? Sorry, I, no, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I've also spent the last few years, um, kind of bouncing around the South. I've, uh, you know, worked for the USDA, worked for industry, and now I am, um, <clears throat> studying weeds out West, uh, with a professor that, you know, so. It's sort of a, you know, we've sort of remarked in private, I don't know how much in public, that it's sort of a weird thing that I um, switched uh, uh, sort of from entomology to weed science. But um, in this case, I uh, really um, decided to choose the advisor rather than the model. 
Yeah, we can we can discuss your treason. This. Oh, Dude, I'm still an invertebrate <laughs> biologist. <laughs> we did have a whole um, discussion about plants being invertebrates, but I think that's yeah. a really important point you just made about choosing the advisor rather than the program or the organism. Yeah. That is the number one best thing you can do for yourself if you're considering grad yeah. school is to think about the person who's going to be your boss and your coworker for the next yeah. however many years because they will make or break whether or not you succeed basically in that program yeah and and your um the reason why i chose him is because he does a lot of uh outreach just like me um and a lot of the outreach he does is on very controversial topics again a lot like me so um you know based on this uh, uh interest um i felt like his lab would be a good environment and that's certainly turned out to be true so. nice Okay, so speaking of outreach, so when you were still in Georgia, I mean, you and Nancy met each other, and you guys decided to create Ask an Entomologist. Can you talk yep. a little bit about that, and what the, what was the impetus behind that? You were just grad students. Why would you, why would you do something so bold and so outrageous? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's turned out to be um, very bold, and we can talk about that more um, when we uh, uh, meet up in November. Um, so the reason why I wanted to start asking entomologists was because I wanted to um, have a way for people to interact with the scientific community. And a lot of my um, a lot of my outreach um, since then had been one way communication. So we essentially put words out into the ether, hope people will listen, and I wanted to see if we could um, figure out a way to make it more of a dialogue. And, uh, so, that... to interrupt, so you're you're talking about like you would write a blog post and you would hope that people would read it or something like that. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Um, okay. You know, just sort of talking at people, and I wanted to see if we could do something talking to people um, uh, uh, through the internet, and that turned out to be extremely successful, far more than we could have ever dreamed. Um, so because we um, uh, we started out getting, you know, maybe one or two emails a month and we could write a blog post about like every email. And then like it got to 20 or 30 emails a month. And now it's like hundreds. And, wow. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so lots it's of people have bug questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people are um, mm. oh, I a lot of those people are just looking for help for infestations, which we don't really do. We pawn them off on the National Pesticide Information Center um, because they can get, you know, the urban IPM people mm -hmm. like Jody and Jonathan to um, help with those problems more. Um, I mean, let's face it, in a more legally protected way than I could. Um, <laughs> so uh, another big chunk of the... Uh, questions that we get are, um, you know, people who think that they're infested with parasites, but they really aren't. Um, it's a pretty common illness that entomologists deal with, and there's not really a way to deal with it that makes everybody feel good in the end, because um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, a lot of, it's just a lot of, it's so hard to track because people just keep doctor shopping all across the country, and um, yeah. But there are also a lot of really good questions. Um, we are uh, uh, currently tabulating them, and um, we're going to try to put out a study. Again, this is sort of a very, very niche side project. So um, we're going to uh, – it's been going slower than we want, so I'm going to uh, be talking to Nancy and Joni at um, ESA in November about ways to um, speed it up. Uh, so – um, a lot of the, a surprising <laughs> amount of the questions that um, we get asked, I'd say maybe five to ten percent, um, at least as far as I can tell, do not have answers. People haven't looked into them. Wow. Um, and again, that's just a sort of off my head gut feeling type figure. We're going to have to do some better sure. quantification of that, or at least I feel like we should. But a lot of the questions that we get are um, very surprisingly complex. People are certainly watching insects, and mm -hmm. they certainly sort of wonder about what they're observing. Mm -hmm. um, and it also is really interesting to me that, um, you know, if you do a histogram of all of our submissions, 
most of the submissions come in during the summer mm -hmm. and most of the um, readership on our blog happens during the summer so um yeah uh so it's yeah it's been a pretty wild ride and we get honestly we get too many questions to even respond to at this point and <laughs> we're not really sure what to do about that um or at least let me rephrase that i'm not very sure about what to do about that um i've spoken to Joni a little bit about it and we're gonna have to um figure out essentially what to do so, um yeah yeah so sorry so to, to interject Joni is the third member of yeah, so uh, uh, there's post. three of us who work on it. Um, I really should have explained this better. There's three <laughs> of us who work on it. Um, Nancy Miarelli, uh, Joan, um, myself, and uh, uh, Jim King. And um, Nancy and I started this um, very, I would say maybe two years out of my master's. It wasn't when I, it was after I left the USDA. Um, and uh, Joni came on about two years after and we very quickly decided to um, you know do a study on the questions that we have so so is is Joni a friend of y'all's from Georgia or so I think Joni started essentially the semester after I graduated and left um, mm. so she and I did not over she and I did not overlap at UGA but um, she and Nancy were very close um, at UGA um, so you're all Georgia graduates. <laughs> we are all University of Georgia graduates. Nice. Okay, so so y'all heard it comes from there. Mm -hmm. Y'all heard it here first. Ask an entomologist has a very southern bias Apparently. in their <laughs> answers. So if you're asking for Pacific Northwest, you know, pest ID questions. Or, or from anywhere that's not North America or Ecuador. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. You can say that we're um, uh, sort of Southern bias, but I'm from the Midwest. Joni's from the Northeast. Mm. Or sorry, Nancy's from the Northeast. She's from Connecticut. Joni is from Florida, which um, is, as I understand, I don't remember exactly where she's from, but I feel like I think she's from South Florida. And if that's the case, South Florida is basically the North. Yes, yes. I, as, as, as a North Carolinian, I completely agree. South Florida is actually technically, it's a part of New York. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> broken off and then gotten attached down onto the, yeah. Have you asked yeah. New Yorkers for your opinion on, or for their opinion on that? Um, all the New Yorkers that matter, which is one or two, uh, have agreed with me on this, so. Yeah. Uh, but, come, um, at me, uh... come at me, New Yorkers, the Yankees. <laughs> All joking, all joking aside, um, we all do have a pretty broad perspective um, because we've lived in so many places. You know, Joni's coming from Florida to uh, uh, Texas, and I've lived in um, Georgia, Mississippi, Iowa, Georgia, Mississippi, Missouri, and now Wyoming. I've lived in five states. So. Okay, so you created Ask an Entomologist, which is a website, or, or I mean, it's a, it's kind of a brand, really. It trans. Yeah. Trends, uh, trends platform. Thank you. Platform. Because you're a on trans Facebook platform and brand. Twitter, and you have an email. Yep, Facebook, right? Twitter, email. Okay. So. Um. But the idea is, you can directly interact with an entomologist. Yeah. Why? Why did you create it? Like you're in, you're in grad school, you're swamped with writing your thesis, you're trying to you know finish your master's, you're doing your research. Like what was the critical point where you and Nancy sat down and you thought, you know, what we need to do is create more work for ourselves? Yeah. <laughs> so. That? Yeah, I <laughs> I find the last uh, way that you asked it pretty funny, but um, as as I said earlier. Um, this uh, uh, happened after I um, was at the uh, after I left the USDA, okay. and um, a lot of the people who I well, one of the people who I um, worked with pretty closely there uh, seemed to very much kind of look down on the idea of outreach, um, and a lot of the. Um, People who were doing outreach in the uh, sort of social group that I had at the time um, 
very much seemed to sort of look down on people who had um, sort of lower level questions about stuff like that or um, misconceptions about very basic things. And uh, I was just more curious as to, you know, if I put myself out there and, you know, had this thing, um, what sort of um, questions uh, would I receive? Um, you know, what sort of things were people curious about? How do they look at insects? Um, you know, what are they seeing when they look at them? That sort of thing. Because it is impossible for me to look at a bug through a non-entomologist's eyes. That is categorically impossible. That's something that I can't do. That's something that nobody in our community can do, by definition. So um, I really wanted to uh, uh, sort of see if I couldn't figure out a way to describe the world that we don't experience. Um, and it's been very successful so far. Yeah, I mean, over, I mean, just when you look at the number of submissions that you guys have, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, it is very overwhelming, um, especially as the site's uh, sort of grown, as we've gotten a lot more recognition. And um, uh, as I've said, we, we get, I, we could sit there and answer questions for eight hours a day um especially during the summer and it would uh we would probably not reach the end of our inbox anytime soon yeah i mean as as an extension entomologist you know somebody whose job it is to answer you know questions about insects and you know not just insects but that that is a, a part of my job it it is very interesting how many people, you know, are encountering insects every day and when they see, uh, you know, either a behavior or an insect that they've never encountered before, they really do notice, they pay attention and, and they're curious about it. Um, I think a lot of people, um, they go through their day-to-day -day lives kind of not paying attention to stuff, but there are definitely a lot of people that are actively noticing things. Yeah. And when they do, they, they, they do run in, they run into that point where they're like, they, their, their knowledge hits a wall. And so having a resource where they can kind of reach out and, and get an answer, um, which may seem very basic for somebody who has a, a degree in biology or entomology specifically, um, is it that's a that's a very valuable resource but i think that there's also an interactional sort of component to consider because um i've spent a lot of time um you know pushing back against um what most people would call pseudoscience on the internet you know mm -hmm. um, things like anti-vaccination anti-gmo stuff um and in every case that i've seen um you know, everything that I've dealt with, one of the um, main, sort of one of the main tactics that people use is to dehumanize scientists. So we actually sort of figure out a way to um, get people to connect with scientists and ask them questions and, you know, build that trust. Um, I, uh, uh, I think that's what I was going for. And it's, it's sort of notable that um, pretty much all I hear from my colleagues is that you can't be trusted if you work for industry or if you have any sort of industry connection, people will ignore you. And I mean, that's not true. I mean, I've, I've been doing this for, you know, five or six years now, and I've been able to build a huge amount of trust with the public. Um, I, I don't want to say despite working for industry, but I do work for industry. It has not been an issue. And I um, don't really get why people say stuff like that because that's never been my experience. Well, and honestly, there are a lot of people who have a similar bias against academia for reasons. So I don't know that it's yeah. just industry specific, but it's, it's really amazing. Yeah, the sort of... Um, the trust that you can build through the vulnerability of just letting yourself be accessible to people, right? That we don't yeah. keep ourselves behind some sort of 
wall or like, oh, you should read my paper. Like, I love that you guys are just there to answer people's questions. Yeah. 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 And we're pretty dedicated to it. So. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. I mean, and and for me, coming from an extension background where my job is to be a face for research based education you know, information. Um, it's it's fabulous seeing you guys doing that from a grassroots we saw a need we decided to jump on it kind of position yeah um, where I mean extension is a, a whole industry in the United States you know and that that's our job but you guys you were in a position where you were like this niche of this service is not being met we're yeah. gonna do it um, well, I feel like I feel like a lot of extension programs don't take full advantage of the internet. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of laughing. No, I'm 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 very much laughing. I, I, yeah, no, uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, you're you're very right. Extension um, is. Very good at um, having research-based based information, but most of the people that I interact with in Extension have a background in research, not mm -hmm. in education. And so we are very much behind the times in terms of how to educate. And one of those big components that we have been failing at as a community for the past 25 years is internet. Um, yeah. There are, there are some, I mean, in, extension is, to, to go off on my own personal land, extension is, is formulated differently in every single state mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and so some states have really great online programs and some states have really terrible online programs. Most of them have really terrible online um, and, and yeah, a big, huge part of that is we're not doing a good job of providing educational resources on online yeah. and which is, has forced people like you to step up and, and provide answers to, to people that want answers. He's feeling feel, a niche. <laughs> I, well, Absolutely. here's the thing. I feel, I feel like that's part of it. Um, I don't feel like I would say that there's not a lot of research or a lot, not a lot of information online for extension because a lot of the blog posts that we use, we do use extension sources. Um, in fact, uh, uh, Jody Green, who we're going to be playing D&D with here in a few weeks, has done a fantastic <laughs> job of updating her Fabulous. online universities, um, you know, fact sheets and stuff like that. And that information is important. Um, but what I really feel like we're missing from a lot of institutions is the sort of content that um, the uh, uh, Sue the T-Rex provides for the American Museum of Natural History. Oh, you mean for the what, Field Museum, but yes. Or for the Field Museum, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry, and hometown what the Monterey, <laughs> And what the Monterey Bay Aquarium does. Oh my gosh. I feel like we need, I feel like we need those sorts of... Um, I feel like we need those sorts of uh, uh, experiences for people for um, entomology and, um, you know, weed sciences. Uh, there's, um, you know, Andrew Kness, uh, Lynn Sosnowski, um, and a few others are doing fantastic work. But um, I go to conferences that are just about weed science um, that have just as many people as the, well, actually, no, the uh, Western weed science meeting that I went to um, had more people than some of the regional ESA meetings that I've been at. So wow. we have this. Um, so with weed science, we have uh, this community that's almost as large as entomology, but I can only, you know, I can only count four or five people with followings that approximate the number of um, followers that like entomologists have on Twitter. Um, you know, in fact, the professor just down the um, just down the uh, uh, hall from my office. Um, you know, well-known guy, um, very highly respected. Uh, he's in charge of extension. 
um, and he does a fantastic job of it. 50 Twitter followers. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's one of the funniest people I know. <laughs> and I feel like he could be excellent at this. So it's extension offices have ext- have a lot of great information, but I don't feel like they put it out there in the most entertaining way. And there's entire disciplines that have that problem. Um, the, the discipline that I'm in now, weed science, um, is I feel is sort of textbook um, is sort of a textbook for that because, uh, you know, I can go out there and find all sorts of entomologists, you know, um, on there having conversations about what they do and, you know, just sort of being hilarious and funny and all that. Um, I'm having a pretty hard time finding weed scientists to follow on social media. Hmm. I mean, that's just what it is. Yeah, I agree. You're you're right. I mean, Andrew Kniss and 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 Lynn Sosnowski. Sosnowski. There's Sosnowski. Um, I am going to listen very closely to her name when I when I meet her at our, <laughs> our conference. Um, <laughs> they're they're both fabulous human beings, and they represent weed science, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Whereas entomology is very well represented in social media, and I, I think you're you're absolutely right, Joe. Um, when you when you do look at representation on social media, which is how a lot of people are inter- interacting with scientists these days, entomologists are very well represented. There's mm-hmm. a there's a lot of us talking about very different stuff. You know, yeah. if you want to find agricultural entomologists doing pest management stuff. You know, you've got Dalton Ludwig, you've got myself. If you want to find people doing really, you know, very niche taxonomy, you know, you've got you've got Derek Hennon doing millipede stuff. You've got yeah. um, you've got Miles Zhang doing yeah, um, you know, uh, wasp, you know, taxonomy. Um, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There, entomology is well represented. Um, well, not only are we well represented, we're also as a as a community very good at outreach. Um, you know, I don't see, I don't see too many entomologists um, sort of screaming at each other or like sc- spending most of their days screaming at random activists online. Um, you know, when we when we talk to the public, we talk to the public and not at them. And mm-hmm. I think that that is something that is sort of ingrained in the entomology culture, um, and uh, uh, it's something that's really truly special. We have. So I'm giving this talk um, about outreach at uh, ESA this year, and it is one of the hardest talks that I've ever written because, you know, they want me to come on and talk about outreach, but there are so many people in this community that are really, really good at outreach that what what am I going to add to that conversation that <laughs> nobody else is saying? Yeah. Well, I... It's, it's a legitimate question. I know what my vote would be, or at least a good starting point. Um, so I, I love when people start talking about this stuff because there's a huge difference between outreach and engagement. And I think that you've sort of been talking around the idea, right? Talking at people and even talking to people is what we would call outreach. But when you're talking with people and engaging them and bringing them along with you in the process and they're engaged in the information, they're much more likely to retain it and they're much more likely to respond positively than if they're being talked at or lectured to or or whatever. Um, So that's that's my little banner that I like to unfurl is this idea that like, you know, we need to be engaging with people. And I know that sounds funny, you know, I I had a hard time with this at first when I switched from doing um, environmental education, you know, face to face with people every day to doing it on YouTube. And I was like, how am I going to engage? But I think it's it's really about, you know, like you guys do with the answering questions or I talk to people in the comments, right? Like engagement is where we really find our value. Um, Yeah, people have to want to interact with you. That's the thing. Yeah. People have to want to talk to you right because if they don't like you it's it's uh you know you're not gonna get very far yeah screaming into the void does very little <laughs> yeah 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 or you know even worse the void sometimes screams back that too <laughs> <laughs> that's even worse yeah. um 
So, Joe, why did you make the transition from the wonderful, welcoming sci-com uh... community of entomology into the <laughs> void that is weed science? He's just not letting and... this go. <laughs> no, he, I want to know, I wanna know what, and... <laughs> what motivated you, know, you to make you know, you know Cedric. He just called you Cedric. <laughs> when when Peter's especially annoying, he becomes Cedric. <laughs> well, he does sound very much like his character right now. So yeah, that's oh. just my shitty character voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nobody else has a oh, character no, voice. I'm trying. Excuse and... me. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> no yeah, one right, else has fine. a character the, voice. The, the DM is nailing it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I really, I've always really liked the problems that come around with um, agriculture. So um, we just, we just have a lot of really weird problems, and agriculture is actually a really good model for evolution. So um, when I was looking for PhD programs around um, this time, I, uh, I had a list of uh, um, people who I wanted to work with, and. Um, some of them it was because of their research, some of them it was because of the outreach, and I um, finally accepted an offer from Andrew Knis, who is a very well-respected uh, weed scientist here in Wyoming. Um, and the project that I'm working on is, um, to me, it's very interesting. So we don't really understand um, why uh, weeds hurt crops, um, and uh, so what we've... Um, so we understand certain parts of it. You know, we know that there's competition going on. We know that there's shade of ones. We know that they steal nutrients, um, you know, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know, if you look at like cornfields, for instance, we can water them to our heart's content and we can put so much fertilizer on them that it creates a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and those crops will not recover from weed. Like we can we can use literally environmentally apocalyptic methods to try to rescue them, does not happen. <laughs> so, essentially, what we've discovered in our lab is that um, at least in sugar beets, uh, up to seventy percent of yield loss can be explained by shade avoidance. So we did a um, series of experiments in the field this summer um, where we uh, forced. Um, beets and grass to um, compete with one or to uh, uh, compete with one another by um, while drawing nutrients from different soil pools. So we literally just put a wall between them. And um, Cheryl, I can send you pictures of this if you want to um, edit them in. Uh, and if you don't, you know, you can just cut that out. So, uh, all right, all right, I got to interrupt uh, you here. Okay, first yeah. of all, can for our listeners, can you explain what sugar beets are? Yeah, so that's actually a good question. I should have um, explained that a bit further. So Thanks, I'm a good interviewer. 60%... Hey, you know what? I am a bad interviewee, so we're good. <laughs> no, you're fantastic, you're fantastic. No. Yeah, go ahead. so go ahead. probably about... 60 to 70 percent of our sugar um, comes from sugar cane, and that's grown in tropical regions. Um, another 30 percent or so um, actually comes from um, beets. And these are sort of like the red ones that you um, buy at the grocery store, the ones that are red and have a um, wonderful earthy cumin flavor. I don't buy them at the grocery store because they taste like dirt, but go ahead. Hey, you know what? Cumin, earth, very similar flavors. And <laughs> I guarantee you, I guarantee you that I could cook you a beet meal that you would love. Bring it on, bring it mm, on. Challenge, so, challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so sugar beets are, um, they are actually the same species, those beets you buy from the grocery store, uh, beta vulgaris. But they've been bred to um, just essentially just shove as much sugar into the roots as they can. So they're like something like 30% sugar, I think by weight, which is pretty similar to sugar cane. Mm. Wow. And what, what do they look like? They are these big white football sized beets. So imagine Bo like football the beets size. that you get at a grocery store and like 
football size or bigger. Wow. Um, you know, I've seen some that were nearly a foot across. So, and but, they're, um, they're white rather than that the red color we normally think of with mm-hmm. these. Wow. Yep. Huh. Yep. And um, so the thing about sugar beets, though, is that, uh, or the interesting thing about sugar beets is that every single response they have to weed competition is just maladaptive. There is no possible way that you could argue that any response that they have increases their competitive ability in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so okay, these are so, just... okay, so these, these things are they're growing underground, right? Like the the beet is a root, right? It's this big yeah. thick root. Tap root. This big yeah. tap this big football shaped root underground. And then above ground yeah. is these what? These kind of like piece of paper sized green leaves, right? That are sticking up. Yeah, so actually like about the size of a printer sheet of paper, the bigger ones. But um, have you ever seen a a Swiss chard? Yes, I have. Again, Fata vulgaris. um, And the leaves of sugar beets look a little bit like that. Hmm. Wait, hold up. Are you saying they're the same species? Yep. So... Go okay, all right. So most of our listeners might not know this, but yeah. So okay, so Swiss chard is is this like the broccoli thing? It is exactly like the broccoli thing. So they've um, bred, they've bred these um, things for completely different characteristics. So um, I was actually going to sort of go through the evolutionary history. Mm. So Beta maritimus um, is sort of ancestral species of beets. It's this plant that grows on rocky shores near the ocean it's very salt tolerant and um sugar beets have not been around for a very long time i want to i'd have to double check the book but i want to say that they came about in like the 1870s all right Um, so post-civil war what post-civil war for post-civil war but over from the south and use that as a metric for (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you have to be from well, the south um, to use that as a metric of time. All right, fair, fair enough. I try to avoid that metric because it can get real controversial real fast. So, anyways, um, these were actually bred from those red beets, which are um, turned table beets, um, and uh, uh, used for sugar production. Hmm. So, the interesting thing to me about this um, experiment is that. The non-resource comp- so um, the non-resource competition thing, uh, just growing plants around the beets without exposing them to the roots, like at all, reduces yield by seventy percent. And the reason that is is because these plants reflect light onto the beet that tells the beet that there's other plants nearby. And what most other plants do is they um, respond by growing up much taller. Um, you know, they sort of respond by um, investing more energy into stem elongation. And what our um, research has shown is that, um, so a full-grown beet can have up to 75 leaves. You know, we, wow. we counted numbers as high wow. as, um, you know, 50 to 75 um Actually, you know what? I have some of my data here. Uh, yeah, so it's not uncommon for them to get, um, you know, upwards of like 40, 50 leaves. Okay. Um, may, 70 might be a little bit unusual, but we've counted as high as 90 um, in our field work. Ooh. So this response, the one that causes, you know, um, up to three quarters the yield, or up to 70% of the yield loss. Um, it gets fixed when the beets just have two leaves. Hmm. So it gets fixed really, really early, and even if you remove the weeds, the plant never recovers. So and what? So when the so so when the when the beet first sprouts, it has a couple of of leaves. Yeah. And if if the color of the light around that freshly sprouted beet is affected by having other plants nearby like weeds yeah then it doesn't grow as well that's what you're saying yeah it, it grows um to uh you know half the size or less and, whoa 
And if it's a you, huge difference. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge difference. Um, and if it was really a competition thing, like most sources think it was, we would, you know, we wouldn't see that if it was mostly competition. So, so when um, you say competition, you're talking about the weed and the beet are growing at the same time, and there's only so much nutrients in the soil yeah and just kind of seeing who can get there first and kind yeah of they're sort it. of slugging it out over nitrogen and um you know all those sort of nice trace elements but <laughs> right. we also sort of know that um we also sort of know that this damage occurs um to like before the weeds are big enough to compete so that sort of makes sense from an ecological point of view um but to go back to beta maritimus, um, what really interests me about this is, you know, why does this plant have this this response that's completely maladaptive? Because um, even though these plants sort of grow on rocky shores where not a whole lot of other things grow, you know, I would imagine that there's probably green algae that grows, <laughs> you know, near them uh -huh. and would cause the same thing. So mm -hmm. it doesn't really make sense to me that this response is so maladaptive. So um, going on to one of, to one of my projects, uh, there's some other interesting observations that um, have been made about this. So ideally what we'd like to do is we'd like to be able to, you know, just say spray a chemical onto the plants along with an herbicide to make sure that, you know, they grow up big and strong, right? Sure, right. How do you fix this problem? Well, that's where we're sort of running into trouble because... Um, a lot of the literature on shade avoidance um, seems, you know, we have so much literature on like how the pathway works. But if you were to read a lot of these review papers on, you know, like phytochromes, for instance, you would think that the process is reversible and it doesn't seem to be. And so a small beet that it has only two leaves, if it gets stunted in this way, it's stunted for its entire life. Yeah, there's nothing we can do. 40 leaves or 90 leaves. It, it, yeah. Wow. Okay. But the thing is, the molecules that sense these actually sort of reverse over time. So this is obviously a very fixed developmental program that gets um, more fixed as time goes on, it looks like. And uh, there's a lot of questions why about that. But what's really interesting to me is that so hailstorms in Wyoming go together like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> like we um, we had a hailstorm earlier this year um, that uh, uh, hit this study pretty hard, and we lost maybe a dozen plants. It was during a nature check game. It was. And you guys <laughs> heard me curse about that. <laughs> so that hailstorm, that hailstorm that. wiped out. That hailstorm wiped out about a dozen plants. Um, and all of the ones that were in that shade avoidance treatment, you know, where we had put the grass in and then removed it, they all grew back huh. as shade avoidance plants. So a lot of the literature that you'll read on this topic, um, you know, implies that the leaves control this pathway and makes it seem reversible. Well, it's not reversible. And you can mow the top off of a beet, and it will still retain this developmental program, at least as far as we can tell from hailstorms, which are sort of a natural experiment. Mm -hmm. So where I'm sort of going with this, um, with uh, uh, my um, beet research, is I want to make some Franken beets. <laughs> um, I want to, so what I want to do is I want to be able to get them specked into that shade of wooden's pathway, cut off the, you know, get a plant specked into that shade of wooden's pathway, cut off the top of the beet, and then transplant it to the root of a beet that has never seen another plant, huh. and switch the tops and the bottoms to see which one recovers and which one gets stunted. Um, so you're looking, you're looking to see whether the um, the trigger for this uh, uh, weed response behavior is in the top of the plant or in the root. Of the plant. I want to see, um, I want to see if it's the leaves or the roots which drive this process because mm. I think it's the I think it's the roots and there's um, mm. some there's actually some papers from like 50 years ago. 
which um, were doing uh, grafting experiments with uh, chard, which has bigger leaves than uh, sugar beets, and um, uh, table beets. And um, it, the uh, root properties didn't really seem to change all that much when you put different tops on them. Um, mm. So I'd like to I'd like to um, do this line of research that hasn't been touched since um, essentially since my parents have been alive. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> That's really cool. Very. Yeah. Very. Um. Whew. Well, yeah, we've been, yeah, I was going to say, um, that is a really awesome sort of, like, look into how we come up with research questions, which I think is yep. really fun. Um, thank you so much, Joe, for telling us a bit about um, your background with outreach and education through Ask an Entomologist, and thank you for sharing some of your preliminary PhD investigations. Um, this was super well, cool. Well, <laughs> the experiments have to start working first. And, yeah. And Friday, so. That's why I said preliminary. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, do you guys have any sort of um, final thoughts for the end of this nature chat? No, this no. was fantastic. Thank you, Joe, for giving yeah. us more Thank of you, a Joe. deep yeah, dive into, into your, your research. It sounds really interesting. I, I look forward to hearing more about it. Yeah, definitely. And, um, uh, you know, I guess um, during this uh, uh, last episode, we decided to sort of go out with um you know random bits of grad student advice and uh <laughs> the piece of advice for this week is to be human it's fine <laughs> to go out to a restaurant or take the weekend off or um you know go out on a date please you are not please your research. take all the weekends off if you can yes that's that it's good advice. for your brain you'll be a better a better researcher if you take the weekends off yep. you are not your research you no. are a human being completely distinct from your job yes and you should treat yourself like that yep and if you take the weekends off then you have time to watch nature check <laughs> <laughs> so there's always that so thanks yeah. for uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in thank you to peter and joe for hanging out and talking on this nature chat and find us again next saturday for another from the annals of history um episode where the two of these guys along with a few other people will be exploring some um plot lines that happened before the main storyline of nature check so we'll see you guys yep. later <laughs>